Welcome to Sports and Society, episode 60. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing well. I'm frustrated in how much Trump has to say about sports and how much of an effect he has on sports, but maybe it'll turn out to be a good thing in the end. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I have to say that, um, so when I made my to-do list for this year, I had get to episode 60 of the podcast on there. And so I'm very happy to be here. But as with you, I'm like, I can't believe we're still talking about this crap with uh, our esteemed uh, Don, as I think I will refer to him for the, rest of the episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to take a minute to acknowledge 60. That's pretty cool. Also, I do have to call you out. I I sent you a screenshot of this this week, but I... Uh, your your caption on GChat has never been more relevant than it is right now, Kyle. <laughs> I really have no memory of making that. <laughs> so wait, what does it say again? I forget exactly. It's, a, it's, it's golf, period, Donald Trump, period, environment, period. That's that's it. I have no idea what spurred that so, on. I, maybe I wrote that like right when he said he was running for president or something. I don't know. Part it's amazing. It's from like I just years ago, though. I would. I think. I. I'm thinking it's from years ago. So, what on earth could I have been talking about? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the it profundity of a, our youth. Yeah, it kind of has an air of like my 19 year old liberalism versus my 33 year old liberalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, well, uh, I think we want to start today by talking about our support for Jamail Hill. Is that uh, is that a comfortable thing just to say that we are a fan? Yeah, a fan, an admirer, uh, a recipient of inspiration from her. It was all, um, I mean, it was a, a, a complex fallout from her tweeting that our president is a white supremacist. Um, but her handling of it afterward uh, and his handling of it afterward were revealing of where I want my allegiances to lie, that's for sure. Uh, you know, she's been my favorite thing to watch on ESPN for a year and a half or two years at this point. And I think that she and Michael Smith, I was really excited to see them promoted to this new The Sixth thing. Um, but I do have to say that I don't know that that, that matters as much anymore. I think it, it it's done away with some of what makes them cool. cool. But yeah. it's, uh, it's just really, uh, it's been really refreshing to see exactly how you said, how she's handled this in a way that I don't think I could have expected anyone, even the best people in the world to handle it as well as she has. And it's just been uh, really, uh, really inspirational, which I hate to use that term, but I don't know that there's any other way to put it. No, I agree with you. And it, it does bring in so many larger issues that I don't think we have time nor the intellectual capacity to completely hash out here is I'm thinking of the journalistic conversation that is surrounding it and then also the corporation part of it and that she has this employer that still employs thousands of other people and then something about integrity as it relates to that corporation as a journalistic corporation 
but then also too this even you mentioning that she's one of your favorite people to listen to the death of sports center um or mm-hmm. the slow dying uh death or, or removal of sports center from the vernacular of espn and how it's so complicated that wanting to support her and wanting to support uh, their show, the Sports Center at six, requires watching television at six o'clock, which is just an odd thing that we don't do anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm with you in loving their show, and I'm always interested in their takes on stuff. But I never tune in at six o'clock to watch ever, uh, and so it's an interesting thing that they have to exist in that time slot as of right now in order for me to see clips of them later when it's convenient for me. But being them being in that time slot is possibly a bad thing for them. I mean, I've wondered the same thing because they, um, you know, ESPN was pushing the Scott Van Pelt real hard for a little while. Yeah. Um, but then they would only, it's like they'd only play that episode once. And so, like, the only time I ever watch SportsCenter is at six or seven in the morning when I'm watching, you know, the, the Neil or Everett version or whatever which is not particularly appealing and i don't ever get to see these fun versions these versions that i really like to see and it's a it's kind of a weird phenomenon in some way for them to take that step and then to the ones that they rebroadcast are not the the ideal shows yeah well 6 p.m and midnight being sc at six and scott van pelt at midnight like (laughs) who's able to do that yeah. Like, <laughs> how is that possible? I don't understand that, but I, I, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, further, but uh, it seems like I think she handled it well. I can't say the same for ESPN at large, but then again, I don't know if I had any expectations for them. Um, you know, it, in in the grand scheme of things, I'm willing to kind of give them a pass in that they haven't fired her. And yeah. I think that's what I would have expected them to do. And maybe they will, and maybe they'll make it slow and quiet. Um, but removed her show yet, I think, is is something that I'm willing to applaud them for, even if they haven't been quite where we'd like them to be. Yeah. And now we have to talk about the fact that Donald Trump is making Roger Goodell look good, which is unbelievable it is unbelievable he 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 has made uh uh, yeah i'm kind of speechless about it i'm still not completely understanding it i was just reading a breitbart article on it and it was so many worlds conflicting that didn't make sense that i felt like the world was gonna like end while i was reading the article on breitbart (laughs) that Breitbart is now attacking the NFL owners. Like, what in the world is happening? <laughs> like, you couldn't... They're, they're attacking that which makes them possible. Like, and attacking it with extreme vitriol and passion. And I, I can't imagine a scenario in which I thought Robert Kraft would come out on the side of being against Donald Trump, but here we are. It's amazing. It's like in reading a lot of these NFL owner statements, they're not 
be forward thinking, but apparently that's, you know, to not totally now release any player that, that kneels during the national anthem for you to be hated by most of America, according to Donald Trump. Yeah, to be supported by a Trump supporter right now necessitates going against the the foundation of the American Constitution, <laughs> which is a remarkable, <laughs> remarkable thing. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know what to make of it. I, I mean, I, it's just hard to comprehend. But, you know, I will say, uh, on a positive note, um, the Packers for me have always been, in terms of franchises, the only franchise that I wanted to get behind in the NFL. Mm -hmm. um, for numerous reasons. And obviously we're not watching football at this point, but their statement uh, went so much farther than any of the other owner's statements went in, in terms of even condoning the social statements of their players, which I just have to take a moment and applaud them for being willing to go that far in their statement. Yeah. <clears throat> the Packers have been the most admirable organization in our lifetime. Yes. Absolutely. Perhaps in any sport, I might even argue. Yeah. Um, meanwhile. Let's, let's stay with football and talk about uh, Aaron Hernandez. All right. All right. Um, so for those of you all that didn't see, uh, they released this, some information that he's, his brain had, uh, I think the line was something like the worst case of CTE they've ever seen in a 27-year-old. Yeah. Um. And so it's really interesting because I've, when I think about CTE this week, all I could kind of compare it to was uh, climate change, mm -hmm. uh, and that the science seems similarly set on both, and yet because they're somewhat complex, um, there's going to be this inability to deal with it for a long time. I think. Yeah, and I think what's even more fascinating here, and not to do away with any of the sadness and kind of horrific nature of this story, which needs to be in the forefront as well, is that his family is now suing the NFL, and mm -hmm. I think they're also suing the Patriots. Is that right? Seen that, but that, that's not surprising, I suppose. Uh, and so, as I understand it, it's the very first lawsuit that is going to cite CTE on this level. Um, mm -hmm. And it's your question about the science communication part of the conversation mm -hmm. and how, how on earth could a CTE science-based argument hold up in court? And the answer seems to be like probably not very much, but yet it exists in our kind of like collective consciousness is like something that is very legitimate, similar to how climate change in anyone that reads books and understands how the world works accepts it. Uh, it's a similar thing here that, the, yeah, it's not conclusive, but understanding the patterns of science leads one to a place where they're like, oh yeah, CTE is causing a massive amount of social damage in our culture. Um, on individuals and a collective level. So how will that hold up in court? And does the court have space for interpreting something like that in a way that would lead to a conclusion that represents reality? Um, 
So I, I think that'll be interesting to watch play out. It re- it really will, and I think it's what it compels me most about this story is that Aaron Hernandez has been playing football since he was six, and that this has been that entire journey has been leading up to this point. Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of questions in there about how we're now looking at a place where largely minority populations are the ones that are taking up football from an early age and those that are um, um, as a way out. And yet there is that that very active playing football is perhaps going to lead to all of the issues that have made it really hard for those minority communities to, to get out of the situations that they're in right now. Right. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's so sad and I really kind of wish that instead of I know that the little league probably doesn't have any money probably who needs to be taken to court more than the NFL even in this case well yeah and I just looked at the lawsuit is including the University of Florida as well so it's they uh, back a little bit more right? that's the first time I've heard about a college being incorporated into it as well mm-hmm. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I would hope that, you know, um, obviously I don't think we're going to see D1 ball anytime soon. There's way too much money in it. Um, But I would hope that this would make places like Center and uh, and Transy and Washington and Lee think about ending their football programs. Right. Um, Because they're not making any money off their football programs. They're, in fact, losing money. And the fact that this is happening should – should lead to some of that thinking. Right. Especially because I, I think to extend that, it, it's that these smaller colleges and universities do it as an image thing, that it's almost like a marketing tool, right? Like, look how complete mm-hmm. of a, a student experience you can have while you're on campus. You can go to football games on Saturday morning. Um and so in that way, yeah. Even though nobody does it. <laughs> right. And so when that image is no longer profitable or marketable uh, or appealing to those that would want to be a college student on a campus like that, that it makes even less sense than it already does. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and just to make us feel a little bit better here, uh, Numbers continue to be down on NFL viewing, so uh, yes. I think all of this stuff is having an impact. Yeah, and yet somehow Trump is spinning it in such a way that the reason the numbers are down is because of the protests and yes. the, the fan base isn't watching. Like, okay, yeah, that's a really insightful take. <laughs> uh, I also do want to put out point out in other good football news is how much I love Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> seeing him play for the Raiders is uh it's as much as I'm not watching, just knowing that it's happening and when I see clips of him dancing on the sideline, I'm just like, that is awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. I love everything he does. <laughs> um, I a friend sent me a Marshawn Lynch video when he was in college of him just being interviewed and being entertaining and hilarious and thoughtful. And I was like, I've, Marshawn Lynch has added a lot to my life in a good way and has taught me a lot about how to view the world. So I'm 
this is just a shout out to Marshawn Lynch and how much I love him. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, well, I'll add to that. Uh, I think what Kaepernick started just got a massive boost yesterday with Bruce Maxwell taking a knee at the Oakland athletics game. I agree. I think it's huge. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what's going to happen this Sunday because I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more people sitting down and taking knees this weekend. Yeah, and what's going to happen in Major League Baseball now? I mean, yeah. I mean, he just burst a massive bubble bubble over Major League Baseball. Uh, and the way in which he did it, having the clout of being a military kid, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what what are what is someone gonna say when their argument since Kaepernick first took a knee that this is anti-military? Uh, what are they gonna say now that Bruce Maxwell has come out and said this is not anti-military? I am a military kid. Like, what do you say to that? Um, without completely like going for a personal attack on him, which I would imagine some of the response will be. But at any rate, I. I really, I thought MLB's response was a little surprising in how supportive it was. Again, it's similar to the NFL owners. It wasn't um, progressive as much as it was just kind of, it was like, oh, they're they're not coming down on this in any way. Um, So I thought their response was good. I thought the A's response was great. And then it seems like there's an outpouring amongst other Major League Baseball players in support, so... But, you know, looking at the pictures, I think they're particularly powerful as well because it's, I don't know if he normally stands at the front of the line, but the fact that, you know, he was at the front of the line and there didn't seem to be any issues with that, the rest of his teammates were just doing their business, mm-hmm. it, it all strikes me as something that um, that team uh, was, a, was at least not incredibly opposed to what he was doing uh, and that it was somewhat okay in that context, which I think... Uh, it, it makes him more powerful in some ways so that he was able to do that and that his team was able to stand behind him literally in that moment. Yeah. I think, too, the specificity of the protest being directly linked with the comment that was made by the president mm-hmm. the day before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit easier, I think, for uh, the, a collective audience to digest uh, whereas Kaepernick seems his original arguments and his original like uh, articulation of what he was doing was a little more broad and encompassing of like social movement in general. Whereas this is like our president said something stupid yesterday, and I'm going to protest what he said yesterday, uh, which is a lot easier to digest. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's what's perhaps most interesting to me about this is that I hope, and who knows, at this point, right, we have no idea what what is going to be successful, and it's really disheartening in some ways to admit that. Um, but to see uh, on the NBA side, to see Steph Curry, Chris Paul, and LeBron James, you know, three of maybe the top five, definitely three of the top five most influential players in the NBA, um, all making very strong statements against the president. That's, yeah. uh, I I have to hope that the bluntness and the personality of those folks being so high 
uh, is going to lead to something a little more of a sway than we've seen so far. I'm with you, and I, I'm thinking about it in terms of, well, the NBA released a, a statement this week as well, uh, or was it last week? I guess it was, I think it was on like September 18th or something like that. Uh, uh, internal memo that they sent to all the players saying, we'll support you in whatever way we can. There was a, a slight way of interpreting it where they were saying, like, come to us first and we can help you get your message out, which is could be interpreted as problematic, but it kind of will depend on how things actually play out this season as it relates to social protest. But with Steph Curry being so blunt about saying, I'm not going to the White House, um, and then Trump saying, never mind, you're not invited, which, okay, let's throw that out for a second for the silliness of that. But <laughs> I think what's different about Steph Curry and Colin Kaepernick is that NBA players have a worldwide appeal. Mm -hmm. Colin Kaepernick does not have that. Um, the NFL does not have that, and that the NBA is watched all over the African continent and all over the Asian continent. So several billion people are brought in to an issue that is a domestic American issue when Steph Curry talks about it, which is different than Kaepernick talking about it. Um, so I think that changes the scope a little bit. And I think it's also, I don't know, I'd like to be interested to see stats on this at some point, but it seems to me that uh, NBA jerseys perhaps are among the best-selling jerseys. I don't know how they compare to NFL, but I wouldn't be surprised if NBA jerseys way outsell NFL jerseys. Um, and now all of a sudden there's this odd thing that perhaps wearing a Steph or a Chris Paul or a LeBron James jersey is a subversive statement in some ways. Yeah which is a, a fascinating thing to think about. Uh, all those kids in the suburbs that love Steph Curry and are wearing his jersey around, what does that mean at this point? Right. It makes me think about, and it's because I'm teaching it right now, <laughs> but uh, those last like six or seven years of apartheid in South Africa, this, is, this was happening like every day. Hmm. Uh, this kind of thing of like, to support someone popular was subversive. And it was evidence of how disconnected the regime was from reality and what followed were economic sanctions. I don't think there are going to be economic sanctions placed on the United States, but I think there could be some kind of, at least in a de jure fashion, but I think there could be a de facto fallout that has economic ramifications on a world scale. And I think Again, I don't think like Steph Curry is going to cause that, but I think we can m maybe foresee kind of a paradigm in which it's a piece of the puzzle kind of thing. Well, I agree, and I think that we're perhaps already seeing some of that, and it's not necessarily on a national level, but it's on a it's on a local level. You know, mm -hmm. seeing how um, the NBA played a role in the HB two stuff in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and like that was really all about economic impact. I think that we're going to see more of that stuff happening in places that refuse to deal with these issues. Right. <clears throat> On a positive note, I'm just beside myself with glee that the Warriors are still going to DC. Uh, they're just not going to go to the White House. 
Yeah, it's only they only keep doing things that are awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's no wonder they can get Kevin Durant to to play for less money. I mean, I, who would not want to play for the Warriors at this point? Exactly. I guarantee Kyrie Irving when he went into those trade talks, his number one thought was like, "Hey, I know this is impossible, but I'd love to go play for the Warriors." <laughs> It's amazing to think about if it got to a point to where all the contracts were so big that it didn't matter. And if there really was something like the Warriors even ramped up more than it is now as far as like player popularity that we saw a super team that was just an all-star team because everyone was already making minimum $40 million a year. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, what's the difference if I go somewhere else and make 80 when I can make 40 here, like what's 40 versus 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get like 12 all-stars on one team just because they feel like it. Um, oh my. I will say that um, Carmelo going to OKC just makes the whole Eastern Western Conference thing even more laughable at this point. Poor Eastern Conference. I mean, who's going to be on the all-star team this year? Justin Winslow is going to be a freaking all-star this year. There are going to be eight people on the All-Star team we've never heard of. Dennis Schroeder will be an All-Star this year. (laughs) Yeah, I feel so badly for the East. I don't know what's going to – this might take like a generation to be teased out. I mean, we had this like five years ago, and we kind of thought we dealt with it, and apparently we didn't at all deal with it. And LeBron's going to go to the Lakers next year. And and John Wall's going to join them. So yeah. that's it. They, I like maybe the Eastern Conference will just go away and like become like a feeder program for the West. In the West, I think uh, UK needs to get their application for the Eastern Conference ready. There, I always hate those arguments of like so and so can beat a professional I do too. team. But golly, there has to be an argument that <laughs> UK or Duke could. <laughs> Could beat an NBA team at least like three out of ten, right? Yeah, I I think we're getting you know like the Magic or somebody like that. Yes, I think possibly. <laughs> yeah, I might be the closest I've ever been to entertaining that conversation. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I I have to ask um, before we move on. Uh, are you rooting for Justin Thomas in the Tour Championship? Uh I don't know. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, I'm I'm not the biggest Justin Thomas fan in the world. There, I said it. All right, Louisville, Louisville, go ahead and uh, bear your teeth. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know. His his story is kind of bland to me. Oh, I mean, but they're all bland stories, so. Well, that's saying an especially lot for me. Like it's so bland that I'm, I'm just not interested. Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's, yeah, it's really uninteresting to me. I don't even have that much to say about it. And to the extent that I haven't even watched any of the tour championship. Well, it is. Um, so there's uh, Xander Shoffley is two yeah. shots back right now, and he's this tour rookie, and so they're loving to talk about him. Um, and uh, it's really interesting because I can't bring myself to look him up because I just know that his story is going to be the same 
as Spieth and Dustin Johnson and Justin Thomas and every other one of these guys on the leaderboard? Uh, he's a little different. Um, he, his name would mislead you. He's actually Taiwanese, I think. Hmm. Um, so he has a little bit different story. Uh, his parents are uh, immigrants. Uh, I think both of them are immigrants. Um, but that name is misleading, I think, is what it is. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll do a little bit of research, but uh, I still feel like I'm probably going to be underwhelmed by his story in the long run. I'm pretty sure, too, that um, he had to decide between soccer and golf because I think he's got, like, an uncle or, like, a couple grandfathers that played in the EPL. Hmm. Uh, so he's from like a really athletic family and watching him play is like, Oh, this guy is, he, he just hasn't had his moment yet, but he's going to be amongst these names now. I, I didn't even know he was close to the top of the leaderboard, but I've, I've had the thought for two years now that this kid's going to be, um, in that Spieth Thomas conversation, Ricky Fowler. It's so funny to me how golf, more than just about any other sport, seems to have these young guys that come up and upset everything, and we think they're going to dominate the sport for 20 years, and then three years later, we don't care about them, and then there's another group of five young guys that are dominating the sport. Yeah, it's because golf struggles so much for headlines. they they got to create a like completely new and compelling conversation every season. It's really hard to do, and it's like how often can you talk about Phil Mickelson and Tiger and keep people interested, especially when they're so not cool. <laughs> especially when they're, you know, actively should be in jail and stuff like that. Literally. <laughs> like, really deplorable stories around those two at the moment. All right. Well, uh, I, before I don't know if you have anything else, but my final question for you is: Do you think either the Dodgers or the Indians will be in the World Series this year? I can see the Dodgers. I cannot see the Indians at all. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I think the Dodgers have playoff staying power, and it's an, un an uninteresting argument that I make all the time that they got the pitching. Um, and I, I would like be more willing if I was someone that believed in betting on sports that uh, the rotation that the Dodgers have has what looks to me based on an eye test that they could do better in a playoff series than the Indians could. Um, I, I think back to the Oakland Athletics when they had their money ball season. Mm. Uh, they had three great pitchers. They didn't have five great pitchers. I can see that. So that's what I. That's what I always. That's just. Not, that's somewhat backed up on like a, a pretty thin understanding of the saber metrics of the last few years on how pitching plays a role in the playoffs. Uh, it's also a thing though that. Is always worth pointing out going into the playoffs of. Anything can happen in a five-game series. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely, anything can happen. The worst team in Major League Baseball can beat the best team in Major League Baseball in a five-game series. And often do. Yeah. So the the playoffs are uh, a completely different entity in Major League Baseball, and 
I wish the regular season played more of a role. Uh, yes. Well, know, you got you anything think? else for news? Well, I I think the Dodgers have the better chance as well. Um, and I don't know why I think that. Maybe I just don't like Cleveland teams very much. <laughs> it's becoming <laughs> a distinct possibility given my track record, but uh, I don't know. I just don't see it for them. I don't either. But that's all I got. <laughs> well, uh, you want to talk about cricket? Yeah. So the World Eleven team, as it is called, uh, just finished up touring Pakistan, and so a couple qualifiers about what that means. The World Eleven is a showcase squad that is put together by the International Cricket Council, and it's meant to be a goodwill sort of team. So the World Eleven is put together from players all over the world, and it's meant to be. Uh, as as many stars as they can get that would be willing to go on the tour. And they do it at any time they feel like doing it. They just kind of organize it and put it together. And then they'll usually go to just one country, but sometimes they'll go to a region. And they'll play against local professional teams. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of is a... It's kind of fun if if... You know, especially for rural parts of the world that don't get to see those stars, they get to see those stars play against their local heroes. Uh, so it's a pretty cool thing on that level. Uh, it's also extremely political because going different places in the cricketing world involves going to places that are economically depressed, uh, very much in the conversation of what is a developing country, how developed of a country should uh, a world cricket tour play in things like that and mm-hmm. so for them to go to Pakistan is a huge deal primarily because no international cricket has been played in Pakistan since 2009 when there was a Taliban attack on the Sri Lankan national team and the World 11 tour coming in and being the first international uh, matches being played in Pakistan since 2009 has also raised a lot of commentary. And so of the commentary I read, two perspectives were interesting to me. One is from a member of parliament. His name is Imran Khan. And Mm -hmm. you know Imran. And so he's a cricketing legend, um, considered one of the best all-rounders of all time. Uh, He's also pretty extreme in his political views at times and has been very anti the war on terror. And he actually originally blamed the 2009 attack on the war on terror. Uh, Hmm. And so he's been coming out pretty hard on this and saying like more of the like fringe view that like this this is kind of fake uh, to think Pakistan is okay right now is a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the ICC and uh, those that are in higher up cricketing in Pakistan are praising this. And one quotation from uh, the head of the Pakistani Super League, who is a fascinating person, um, his name is Najam Sithi. He's the head of Pakistani cricket. He's been arrested twice by corrupt governments in Pakistan. He runs the <laughs> Pakistani um, professional league, 
He's an award-winning journalist. He's a graduate of Cambridge. He's wanted by the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. He hosts a nightly talk show. Uh, and so he came out and said, now we can say with assurance that the war against terrorism has been taken to its logical conclusion and that 90 to 95% of terrorism has abated in this country. The sufficient condition was to convince the ICC that the situation was safe to play cricket. First step in that direction was to at least try and play at least one match in Pakistan. Security experts affiliated with various boards and also with ICC came to Lahore and saw that it was now time. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have a like fascinating insight on this, but I think it's just significant to point out that it's happening. And so what is significant is that Pakistani wants to... Uh, or Pakistan wants to segue this into a match against India in Pakistan. And what Sethi and others are promoting is they're actually like wanting to bill it and market it as an anti-World War III match. Saying that uh, if Pakistan and India were to go to war, it would start World War III. And they're also billing it as the anti um fourth war between Pakistan and India, saying that this match could save the world. <laughs> like, they're being that grandiose about it. <laughs> There's a really interesting dynamic when you juxtapose this with all the Trump stuff over here uh, and the yeah. number of folks that are talking about keeping politics out of sports. It's really interesting to see how the rest of the world kind of steers into the skid in some ways and says it's always going to be political. Let's take advantage of that mm -hmm. but yeah the idea of saying that one cricket match could save the world is <laughs> very fascinating and like, I, got, I mean so complex to dig into where one could arrive at that conclusion and not only that have a space to entertain that conversation <laughs> that's what's even more incredible about it and I think it's hard for American audiences to understand but there would be a couple billion people that would watch that match. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it is a big deal when a couple billion people are all going to do the same thing at the same time, in my opinion. Well, it's, I, anytime anybody comes to me with and thinks that their idea is the most important thing in the world, mm -hmm. I get a little, like, I go back into my shell and say, well, that's not, that's not a person I want to talk to. But I feel like it, there are certain cases, and perhaps this is one of them, where I don't know that I need to agree with this sentiment. Yeah. But it's important in some ways that people are thinking this grandiosely and that people think that there is a solution to things. Uh, right. And that perhaps is the most important thing in my mind. Right. Hmm. What about cycling? Well, so we're right in the midst of the world championships, as in, I think, last I checked, there were 30K left in the men's uh, world championships, which is the last of the weekend, the men's road race. Um, biggest takeaways so far, there's two. Um, one has been that Tom Dumoulin, uh, who won the Giro this year, absolutely destroyed everyone else in the time trial championships, including putting like a minute, uh, a minute and 45 into Froome, almost catching Froome on the course which is unheard of mm -hmm. this race the Vuelta, but it does 
Um, it sets up this really fun dynamic for next year where Tom Dumoulin is all of a sudden a guy that can really potentially compete with Froome to take him off the top. Um, so we'll see. But I'm, uh, it'll be an interesting dynamic for sure next year. Uh, and then the second uh, kind of thing is that there's a new president now for the – I forget. It's the UCI. It's a French thing, uh, spelled yeah. thing. But they're the governing overall governing body for cycling. Uh, really interesting. Guy won by landslide, like 37 to 9 but from the governing body which, um, as with FIFA, is probably as about as corrupt as you can imagine. But um, it's a fascinating thing in terms of people, I think, got really fed up with the lack of leadership that the last guy gave, that he, there's nothing perhaps wrong with the way he handled things, but he just didn't take the bull by the horns, mm -hmm. which is uh, a, a not uncommon thing, but it's always something that kind of fascinates me, this question of, like, do you want strong leadership or do you want conciliatory leadership and where is one appropriate and where is the other appropriate? Right. Um, and then of course, nationalities play into this heavily and that the previous guy was an English guy and this new guy is a French guy. Um, and so how's that going to play with the organizers of the tour de France who are the main kind of problem child of the UCI at the moment and such. So, right. I, I think I'm, I'm remembering back when we did our whole tour de France thing. Gosh, that mm -hmm. was like three or four years. I was like four years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when I was trying to figure out what the UCI was, it was almost difficult to find out what they were. It was like so all over the place and so corrupt that it was hard to even come up with a definition or an understanding of what they were and what they did. That's about right. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. <laughs> essentially, they're supposed to fall in the same place as, you know, FIFA maybe falls in for soccer. That's how they think of themselves. But they don't at all operate that way. So, like, the, the Tour de France comes out and says that they want to do eight riders in the Tour per team next year instead of nine. The UCI says no. But the UCI can't really say no. And so, really, they're counting on the other the the ASO the organizers to backtrack on that so it's it's a really odd thing and essentially they just kind of they're more like a suggestion box than anything else in some ways <laughs> that would be an awesome tagline on their website welcome to the UCI the suggestion box <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh, is there is there a a timeline for Chris Froome, or what is the timeline for Chris Froome's career? Is he in the last chapter? Does he have another few books in him? What what's left for Chris Froome? So I think that cycling it's harder to tell this than perhaps any other sport um, because form plays such a role. Uh -huh. And this is the second time that my cat has jumped into the microphone. So. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I think I think he still was at peak power this year, um, but he showed more vulnerability than he did in the past couple of years, and that's that's always hard to know whether that's better competition or whether that's you know him training in a slightly different way. Um, but I think uh, if I had to guess, I would say that he is on the last. He has maybe two years of being a potential Tour de France champion left 
Um, but that that's largely going to be dependent upon competition because I think that he's going to lose perhaps 2% a year for the next couple of years, and then it'll drop off more dramatically. Does Sky have someone to take his place? Oh, always. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they have a couple folks, yeah. um, but they're, uh, you know, you never know. They're so good at turning people in that you didn't expect to be there. But the downside is they don't have anyone that's kind of just blazed onto the scene in the way that Froome did. So I don't know that they have anyone that can match what he has accomplished. But I do think that they will they will have a Grand Tour champion after, after Froome goes. Cycling would benefit from someone that's more interesting than Froome. They certainly would. They and you know, Consador had all the stuff with the, with the doping, but man, he was a much more interesting person than Froome has ever been. Yeah, the most interesting thing about Froome is that he grew up in Kenya. Like, how much can you do with that? Well, it's interesting that you know there, you know, Bradley Wiggins was the guy that was before him, um, and Wiggins has been like famously shellacked for being boring and yet his boring was boringness was an interesting thing in and of itself in a way that Froome has not been interesting yeah like his taciturn nature his desire to be to avoid everyone else that was enough to make him much more interesting than Froome has been yeah aloofness is different than boredom yeah yeah well Can we talk about what it means to be a world champion? Let's do it. All right. So, I mean, this this question came up for me. We were going to do this last weekend, but as happens with a baby, that becomes difficult sometimes. But um, (laughs) uh, when the world championships for cycling were starting, and now they're ending, but I do – this is always an interesting question for me, particularly perhaps with cycling in that – you know, every year it's a different race course, and so every year there's a potential for a different kind of racer to win. Um, and yet, there's every time when you get on the course, you know, you could argue that there's 25 of the best riders in the world that don't have a chance of being world champion that year, and that's an interesting phenomenon to me, um, including the it guy is. who's won the Tour de France. Right. Which I think one of the central questions is like, what makes for a legitimate world championship? Right? Exactly. Yeah. And even at the start, part of the problem with that seems to be that, for me, like what's kind of hovering over the conversation is a really interesting question that I think world championships in any form benefit from and struggle because of at the same time. And I think it's because it's a similar problem that like an organization like the UN has or any international forum is like, what does it mean to be uh, to be international or what kind of identity is going to be formed around the idea of something that is going to have the gall to say we are of the world? <laughs> like, is there anything more vast like in the human experience than trying to understand what the world is. And so I, I always find it interesting and a reason to watch the Olympics to see how the Olympic committee puts forward their definition of what they think the world is. So on that like sociological level, it's fascinating to watch how 
an identity of what it means to be a world citizen is kind of formulated and fomented in a way. And so I always look at all of these cups that exist. You know, there's like the Labor Cup, the President's Cup, the Ryder Cup, the Solheim Cup, the International Crown, Track and Field World Championships, World Baseball Classic, the Olympics, the World Cup, and how each of them kind of put forward their own idea of what internationalism is and what it means to be a member of the world. And so at the start for me, that's like always interesting. And then it's also interesting to watch how that like might hurt um, an organization that's trying to attempt to create that. Hmm. Um, so I don't really know how the world championships in cycling does it, but it seems like a, a starting point should be that anyone from any country can win it. Agreed. And that uh, I think you, you try to make the rules as fair and balanced as possible in some ways. Right. Um, so I'm, it's, it's interesting to me because of, you know, the guy who will probably win today, although who knows, because this cycling is famously unpredictable. Uh, but Peter Sagan is, you know, arguably the best in the world over these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, He's been the world champion the past two years, uh, and he uh, is from Slovakia, which, of course, is not a world cycling powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, as with most of these things, they try and divvy it up so teams are determined by the strength, collective strength of countries. So teams like England and Australia and France get nine riders, um, but the smaller countries like Eritrea maybe gets one and Fiji gets one. You know, these countries. So there's a lot of people in the world championships that really have no business being there. Yeah. Uh, but that's part of the charm anyway. I love that. But then you have countries like Slovakia where you have the, the best, arguably, cyclists in the world, but you don't have many others. So they're only going to have, I think, three folks in the race. And so now there's this whole thing like, how does Peter Sagan control the race when he doesn't have a big enough team to control the race? Um, and what does that mean? And uh, does that... And so, but then that brings up these massive questions, which I think are always the biggest ones, which is when you have this one like world championships tournament or something where, uh, just like with baseball, as we mentioned earlier, uh, there's a high likelihood of someone other than the best in the world winning that race right? or that competition or whatever. Uh, I mean, the fact that Greece won the Euros, Greece is not the best soccer team in the Euros and has never been the best soccer team in the Euros right. in Europe, but they won Euros. And so they were had that crown for a little while. Right. Um, and so that that's always a bit of a weird thing. So how, like, this person is the world champion, but that doesn't, in my mind, ever equate to them being the best. Right. Which makes me think, and I, I would imagine we are, we share this sentiment that Maybe the sporting events that we're most compelled by on the international stage are the ones that don't lend value or don't lend advantage to a richer country. Mm-hmm. And so something like the 100-meter dash is something that you and I both love. And there seems to be something about it that is so absent of socioeconomics that anyone on the planet Earth has the opportunity to run 100 meters. And it takes very little infrastructure for someone to get good at that. Uh, And that someone from a poor country 
uh, can win a gold medal. And the 100 meters seems to be what makes it so fascinating. Well, and I, I particularly for me, I tend to enjoy the events like the five and 10,000 meter where it's countries like Kenya and Ethiopia that dominate. And we know that they have fewer resources. And the fact that the U.S. is pouring a bunch of resources into this but can't compete is a fascinating yeah. phenomenon in and of itself. Right. Yeah, and I, I guess to, to talk about the World Cup a little bit, I mean, soccer has that going for it too, to some extent. Um, I, I would have to look back at like the last 20 teams that won the World Cup, and I would imagine... Uh, is it Germany and Brazil have the most? Mm -hmm. uh, so in that way, a little more developed countries than, say, like some sub-Saharan African or Southeast Asian countries. But at any rate, it also seems to benefit from the same thing, that anyone can play soccer and a country doesn't have to have incredibly significant infrastructure for them to field a, a team that can compete. Um, and then the richest countries in the world can get absolutely walloped in the World Cup by a poorer team, which is pretty awesome. Well, I do think that there there probably is a threshold, right, where you need to be able to invest X amount. And I think yeah. that's part of the reason why we haven't seen an African country do better is because the, their structures are notoriously poor. Yeah, uh, and so that they can't do that. But it, you can have a country like Uruguay, which is not particularly prosperous, that puts together these incredible teams because they have happen to have three uh, once in a lifetime athletes at the same time. Um, right. So those kind of things, and then you know, like, the, like to see a country like the Dutch uh, dominate uh, somebody like Spain or Italy or France is always a fascinating phenomenon as well. Indeed. Is the World Baseball Classic ever going to matter? Or is it just us having United States blinders on that our country doesn't seem to care about it, that we don't pay attention to it? I, well, so this is an interesting question, because I think it does matter. It just doesn't matter to us. And so what, like, that's yeah. the whole, does it matter to the money, I suppose, is the is the final question. But... Uh, I don't know. I think things like um, seeing how the men that uh, represented the U.S. in the Olympics at golf came back absolutely yeah. loving that gives me hope that the kind of thing can happen for baseball. Because um, I don't think yeah. we're going to have all these folks that are backing out of the Olympics next time. Right. And so, uh, you know, I think that there's a there's a strong possibility that something will get better, but I don't know. I don't know what it would take for Americans to really buy into the World Baseball Classic. I just, and I've mentioned this before on here, the idea of the Dominican Republic beating or being favored to beat the United States in baseball is incredible and something we should spend a whole lot more attention on. Uh, like one of the poorest countries in the world, absolutely just dominating and destroying a nation's pastime is only awesome to me. I think that I we, we could argue that the biggest uh, reason that the World Baseball Classic won't ever really matter in the U.S. is because I don't know that baseball will ever really matter again in the U.S. the way it did 20 years ago. 
That's an I think interesting that, comment. I think that uh, we're now seeing, I mean, I don't know what the percentages are, but there are at least a few majority Hispanic teams out there at this point in Major right. League Baseball. Right. Uh, and I, I just, I wonder if that's ever going to, until the U.S. becomes majority Hispanic, which I'm sure we have a timeline for that, um, I don't know that baseball will ever have the same prominence that it used to. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine a um, scenario in which it would usurp the NBA or, some, or even the NFL, for that matter. Although I was intrigued. I don't know if you saw that, like, before profit sharing, I think there were 12 NBA teams that lost money this year, which I didn't expect to see have happen. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, what what do you think about when there are more important events? So, like, uh, I think one of the other things that happens with world championships is that they often – there's this big question between whether you're – league teams or whether your international team should compete in them do you like what does that mean for you when you think of because i think we've talked about this like after the world cup i remember we talked about uh, i watched a atletico real game and like man that was just so much better quality than the world cup yet the world cup is considered that world championships level right yeah the question of if if it's not the best quality of play possible is it still worthwhile thing mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know i'm I'm always mixed on that because i just did the same thing the other day and i watched a u.s national men's team game and then the next morning was watching english premier league and it was like watching a college game versus <laughs> a professional game it, it was remarkable the difference in play and how much more enjoyable it was to watch that every single player on the field would have would start for the United States. <laughs> not, not one American could have uh, held their own on the EPL field, the way the game was being played. Um, I don't know, because it, it just, I guess, depends on what's being valued by the championship. So uh, 27 billion people watched or collective viewership of the world the last world cup was 27 billion hmm. that makes it matter right like yep that, that the mattering is in that scale and in that number it's not in the quality of play um so in that way i'm like me enjoying it <laughs> doesn't matter when 27 billion people watched uh the tournament at large so i don't know i don't know if i have an answer well, I do. There's this question going back to that very beginning of how do we define this? And I wonder if perhaps it's more equitable to look at it from the club perspective, in that, you know, we now have um, numerous Africans that have won the Champions League. Yeah. Um, because they were good enough to be on that stage. But I don't know when we'll see an African team compete for the World Cup title. Right. Um, and so by like by valuing those clubs, maybe we are actually opening the door for more diversity in the in the winners of uh, in the people who we consider the champions. Yeah, that's an interesting question too. Of like, would the quality of play at uh, the World Cup be as good as it is, were it not for the European clubs being as good as they are? 
Mm-hmm. You'd probably say no. Like, there's no way if if they weren't international in the buildup of their team, then there's no way the World Cup would just be a bunch of Europeans playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, maybe in our lifetime, we'll actually see an African team win the World Cup. Or India. That would be perhaps even more powerful in my mind to see them pull it out. Which makes me think of our book. Uh, how far are you in the book? <laughs> uh, not very far. Again, something that babies uh, don't help with. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a phenomenal can... book, by the way. So if anyone wants to get in on it, we still probably have time because uh, Brad's think... probably three months out from finishing it. I know. I'm I'm going to try and do two weeks. That's what I'm aiming for here. Okay. So, so I just finished my other book today, so I have some time now. Okay. Um, I don't know any other points you got on that. Not really. I just it's a it's an interesting phenomenon, and I do think that uh, one of the things that always comes to mind when I think about this is how ridiculous we sound when we talk about only American sports in terms of world champions. So, like yeah. the Super Bowl crowning the world champion of football. Well, yeah. yes, maybe, but also that's a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah, and I I wanted to end there too, in that. Uh, to sound like a teacher, uh, the question I ask my students a lot whenever we're talking about something on an international scale is I say, like, just close your eyes for a second and try and imagine the world. Which is like a fun thought experiment of, like, what on earth? Like, our brain doesn't have space for that. Like, all we, we just end up in a place where we're like, well, we can make a whole bunch of lists or we can curtail the conversation to a way that helps us make a point that we want to make about what we think the world is or should be but ultimately it's it's a thing that's really impossible to fully imagine and realize and so that adds to the absurdity of calling it the world series or the super bowl is the world championship i'm always when i think about this i always go back to books like there was a you know, there have been nonfiction books of great length written about salt and one kind of fish and, mm-hmm. um, you know, one language. You know, there's, there's just no end to how big things are. And it is, yeah, it's a little absurd for us to stand on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm good there. All right. Well, time for I think, I guess. Go for it. Let me start with a controversial statement. I think we should soften or eliminate all national boundaries. I have seen very little positive come from the arbitrary of pride attached to the places we are citizens of. Our ethnic backgrounds may bring value and identity, but the identity that comes from nationality brings with, very, with it very problematic issues. I'm happy to talk about this more, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm using it as a bridge as to why we should eliminate conferences and leagues in American sports. The American League has dominated the National and Major League Baseball in most ways for the past 15 years. The Eastern Conference and the NBA is an embarrassment. The NFL's conferences add nothing to the experience of things. And that is the bottom line. I think I think that even when done best in the modern world, league separation does not add anything to the game and should be eliminated. 
we should see the best eight or 16 teams in the playoffs, no matter where they come from. Anything that adds stands in the way of that is problematic. While the league stuff seems historically different in baseball, it doesn't even matter for most people in other sports. So let's get rid of it. Artificial league separation, like artificial national boundaries, are highly useless and lead to problems, if not violence. There we go. That is pretty radical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, the, it's the valuing of quality being put at the top, right? Like, yes. But the, the value of quality and the recognition of arbitrary distinction – Mm-hmm. Um, that at some point these league systems meant something, um, mm-hmm. but no, like at some point there was a logistical reason why the American League and the National League didn't play each other, and there was a logistical reason why teams in the Central were in the Central and teams in the East were in the East, and they played each other. Um, right. With how things are structured right now, that no longer makes sense and is standing in the way of our enjoyment of things. Um, and so perhaps in the past there was a time when countries were an important force for maintaining the public good, but right. I think that we've seen that that is not uh, not a thing that works anymore, and that instead they're, they've become agents of, of distinction and agents of violence more than anything else. Right. I'm in. <laughs> you got me. All right. Well, we uh, we from our white man pedestal can enjoy this this perspective. Yeah. So. <laughs> what All you right. got, man? The Dodgers winning a bunch and then losing a bunch. The Indians winning twenty two in a row. Watching Charlie Rose interview Joe Madden. The colder evenings. The Reds irrelevancy. All remind me that baseball playoffs are going to be here in a minute. I think that I think that being entirely ignorant and dismissive of all things that matter would make the MLB playoffs an incredible amount of fun. I also think that I think that there is space to really enjoy the MLB playoffs despite being aware of how suppressive the league can be, how masculine and annoyingly old school the league can be, how resistant to progress in many forms the league can be, and how greed might be driving the whole thing. As much as most sports and more than a few of my other favorite sports, a playoff baseball game can be especially fun and pleasing. I've always liked the matter-of-factness of the game, the contrast between the repetition and the significant role of chance, the building of tension and the heft that can be present before, during, and after a single pitch. Playoff baseball is a way of extending a moment. And if all of us millennials are trying to live in the moment, then shouldn't we be engaging with the sport that puts doing so in the forefront? Mm-hmm. Either way, the white male dilemma persists. Am I watching a sport that low-key normalizes shushing, or am I watching a sport that is good for my mental peace? I'm not sure, but I do love playoff baseball. And my caveat or revision is that I wrote this before Bruce Maxwell bravely took a knee yesterday. And I couldn't support him more. It's made me even more excited for the playoffs, though I am nervous about the knuckleheads that are announcing the playoffs. Uh, Jim Buck, you don't think he's going to be just f- fantastic and really progressive about things? I I was looking very briefly at who's going to be announcing, and I didn't see one voice that I was like, oh, that person will take up for this. Every voice that makes up MLB playoffs is 
a doofus. So I'm a little nervous about the absurd things that are going to be said. On the positive side, since you're being Breitbart, I'm sure you're going to see some good Kurt Schilling material here in the next few weeks. I cannot imagine. I c- Bruce Maxwell should probably like put a restraining order on Kurt Schilling because Kurt Schilling might assassinate him. <laughs> oh my! It does. It, it, these questions, I think, are universal, and that cycling is dealing with it right now, and that they're going to start the Giro d'Italia in Israel next year, and of course, that's bringing with it this whole shit ton of arguments. That how do you even begin to respond to it at this point? Mm-hmm. Yep. But I'm still probably going to sit there and enjoy it, even though it's complex because it's one of those things that brings me joy in life. <laughs> yep. I love the playoffs. I can't wait. Well, just know that your Reds will never be relevant anytime soon. Yep. Not in my lifetime. <laughs> but the Joey Votto will be amazing for the next six years, and no one will ever know about it because the team will never be relevant. Yep. This is all true. All right, man. All right. Well, you good? Yep. Well, you've listened to two white guys espouse their white beliefs again. So uh, please know that we do not support the president, and we think he's a bit of an asshole. And I also condone the use of referring to him as a bum. Amen to LeBron James for that. Amen. Uh, Well, thanks, Gav. Thanks, Gav.